My name is Sam Blumenfeld, and I'm going to discuss, uh, see how they put it here. Uh, look, same method causes dyslexia. Yeah. Very controversial. Very controversial subject. First of all, most people can't even define dyslexia, so that's very important to define it. But let me give you some background, because you may be wondering why... Who, who is this guy up, up here? What does he know about it? Well, and I'll explain how I came to this uh, notion that it's the teaching method that creates the reading problem in the schools. It's not, the, uh, it's not genetic. It's not something that you're born with. You know, you're not born dyslexic unless you've had the, unless you're born with half a brain. Uh, the only natural dyslexics are war casualties, people who've had strokes, uh, that sort of thing. You know, brain damage could cause that, but uh, the idea that a, uh, that a perfectly normal child with per perfect or good hearing and good eyesight and excellent speech development uh, should have a, a you know, a problem learning to read and should be then labeled dyslexic as ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. But in any case, how did I come to such conclusions or how did it happen? Well, it really uh, took place, It's the whole process started back in the 60s when uh, a friend of mine, I was then editor at Grosset and Dunlap, a big publishing company in New York City, and this friend of mine, Watson Washburn, had just created a new organization called the Reading Reform Foundation. And he asked if I would become a member of his uh, National Advisory Council. And so I asked him, well, uh, uh, Wadi, what is the uh, Reading Reform Foundation going to do? What's the goal of the foundation? Now, remember, this was in the 60s. And he said, well, we want to get phonics back in the schools. So I looked at him. I was sort of surprised. What do you mean get phonics back in the school? Since when was it taken out? I mean, how can you teach children to read without it? And so he explained to me how in the early 1930s the professors of education changed the way reading is taught in American schools. They threw out the alphabetic phonics method and they put this new method, uh, this look-say whole word or sight method, uh, which teaches children to read English as if it were Chinese. And I said, well, that's absolutely preposterous. How could you learn to read English as if it were Chinese? It just it sounds like a very stupid idea. And so he suggested that I read uh, Rudolf Flesch's book, Why Johnny Can't Read, which had been published in 1955. And in that book, Rudolf Flesch, uh, we already had a reading problem in 1955, and and Rudolf Flesch explained exactly what had happened, and he said that, yeah, they're teaching children to read English as if it were Chinese, an ideographic writing system, and when you impose an ideographic teaching technique <clears throat> on an alphabetic writing system, you get reading disability. You get what is known as dyslexia, you see. Well, I mean, that was... Uh, that was pretty convincing as far as I was concerned because I knew you couldn't learn to read without phonics. So, um, 
I, uh, you know, I didn't think, I joined the organization, and then in 1970, I wanted to write, uh, I wanted to become a full-time writer. So I went to this friend of mine, Neil McCaffrey, who had started the Conservative Book Club, and I asked him what kind of books he'd be interested in, and he said, you know, we're interested in a book on, uh, on how to start a private school. He says there's been a tremendous interest, a resurgence of interest in private education. Apparently, parents are getting very dissatisfied with the public schools, and there are a lot of these so-called alternative schools being created, and and could you do a book on that subject as how to start a private school? Well, I did some research, and I thought, yeah, I could possibly do a book like that, and so I signed a contract, and I traveled all the United States, visited all sorts of private schools, particularly those that were started by parents, and uh, but I also wanted to find out why the parents were so dissatisfied. What was going on in the public schools? So I decided that I would uh, try to get it, uh, get into the public schools. Now the now I was not a, a certified teacher, was not a professional educator. Now how does a person like me get into a public school? Well, it's easy. You become a sub substitute teacher. And the only qualification for becoming a substitute is to be warm. You know, that's it. <laughs> you can walk and talk, you're in, you know. And so I, I started teaching in the uh, high schools and junior high schools of Quincy, Massachusetts, where I was living at the time. Or, and, gee, I was getting calls every morning, you know, at the crack of dawn. Can you come in? You know, we've got this teacher and other teachers uh, who were away. So I started teaching in these schools and of course it was a bit of a shock to me because I hadn't been in a public school for 25 years. And I was shocked when I went and walked into this high school and there were kids with these Mickey Mouse t-shirts and, and the whole atmosphere was sort of, sort of slovenly from an academic point of view. I mean, I attended a high school that had, you know, high academic standards. We wore ties and shirts and jackets. I mean, uh, this business of walking around, you know, it was like a, a gypsy tent. And I thought, what's going on? What's happened? And then what really disturbed me when I had English classes was how poorly the kids read. And I thought, gee, these kids are, uh, uh, you know, they're born in this country. They're going to school. And they're reading like a bunch of foreigners, like they just got off the boat. Of course, in those days, you still got off the boat. Today, you get off the 747. But in any case, um, it was a shock to me because I thought that Rudolf Flesch had solved the problem. He told the, re he, he told the educators why the kid, Johnny wasn't learning to read. He said, uh, because you're not teaching him to read in the correct phonetic manner. You're using this whole word sight method. And I thought that they listened to him, but the fact was that they didn't. And so uh, after the book on, on the uh, How to Start Your Own Private School was finished, uh, I, I asked my publisher if he'd be an, interested in a book that brought the reading problem up to date because I said, you know, Flesh's book was written in 1955 and here it is 1971 and the problem isn't solved yet. So uh, would you be interested in a book? And he said, yeah. So I did a lot of research. First of all, I wanted to find out who in his right mind ever dreamed up of teaching children to read English as if it were Chinese. 
I said, some wacko must have had that idea. I mean, it just is so preposterous, it doesn't make sense. Well, it turned out that it turned out that it wasn't somebody who was insane. He turned out to be a perfectly sane individual. In fact, he was the Reverend Thomas H. Gallaudet, the teacher of the deaf and dumb. See, back in the 1830s, Gallaudet taught the deaf to read by a sight method. You see, they couldn't hear sounds, so he used uh, pictures juxtaposed with words, and so the deaf were able to pick up a, a bit of a sight vocabulary that way. And he thought that this method could be adapted for use by normal children and would save these children all of this this uh, laborious drills that in those days children uh, had to go through in order to learn to read. You know, back in those days, they drilled the children in the baby, bi, bo, bu, me, me, my, mo, mu, ab, ab, ib, ab, ab. You know, that was the way they taught in those days. Of course, there was a reason why they taught that way. It wasn't torture. It was really a very, it was pedagogically very defensible. Now, so he thought that, th that this method could be used uh, for, it could be adapted for use by normal children. So he wrote a little primer called the Mother's Primer, a, a copy of which is kept in a vault in Gallaudet College. So if you ever want to see it in Washington, D.C., go to Gallaudet College and say you'd like to see a copy of Dr. Gallaudet's uh, Primer. The first site primer ever published in the United States. Well, the Boston primary schools decided to adopt Gallaudet's primer, and so they um, they did, and it was used in the schools until 1844, when the uh, the the schoolmasters threw up their hands and said, "We can't take this any longer. This is just horrible. I mean, these kids are coming out of the primary schools; they can't read. They don't. You know, this is horrible." They're destroying the system. And they wrote this scathing report, the scathing critique of this site method, which was published uh, in 1844. And when I wrote my book, I included that, that critique in that book because I wanted people to understand how early it was recognized that that method caused reading problems. So we know that as far back as 1844, and these... These um, schoolmasters were very precise in their thinking, and they had it down to a T. They knew exactly what was wrong with this method, why it didn't work. Uh, well, then, of course, uh, you didn't have the NEA, and you didn't have all kinds of professional organizations to prevent the educators from going back to doing things the way they should be done. But it wasn't until the, uh, oh, that, well, then an, another thing that I did with this book, I, I also did a line-by-line -line, uh, analysis of the Dick and Jane reading program. And I came to the conclusion that anyone who was taught exclusively by that program would exhibit the symptoms of dyslexia. I mean, it just made complete sense to me that if you taught children to read in that particular manner, uh, without any uh, additions of intensive phonics, that child would become, would exhibit the symptoms of dyslexia. And that's why today, 90 million adult Americans have substandard reading skills. Adults. I'm not talking about kids, I'm talking about adults who went to school back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when, when the Dick and Jane books were being used in the schools. 
Now, there were many people, not many people who also had Dick and Jane, but learned to read. And uh, those were the, the uh, children who were fortunate enough to have had an old teacher who knew phonics and was able, who realized that you can't teach a child to read with just this look, say, nonsense. You've got to teach phonics. And so they taught what we call now bootleg phonics. You know, it was phonics on the side, but uh, but a lot of kids learned to read that way because their teachers knew enough. But but as the older teachers died off or retired, you had these new young teachers who came into the system, and these teachers knew not phonics, you see. So they used the you know they taught the whole word method in 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 a very in a way that was so bad that today we have this large population of people with substanding reading skills in the United States. And so literacy in this country began to decline. It reached its high point around the, 19th, in the early 1930s and then began to decline. And I have figures of that in my book, The Whole Language OBE Fraud, where I cite the, uh, the literacy figures uh, as they reach their peak and then have got, have uh, experienced this very sharp decline, which continues with whole language. Now, it was clear to me that uh, this method of teaching was causing the reading problem, was causing what you call dyslexia. Now, that's a very tricky word. It's a very general term. Uh, what does dyslexia actually mean? It means, uh, you know, Problems with words. That's all it means. And uh, how do you find how, how do you designate somebody dyslexic? What are the symptoms? Well, the symptoms are very uh, you know are well known. Reversals of words, reversals of letters, uh, scant phonetic knowledge, um, guessing words, skipping words. I mean, if you've ever had one of these kids read to you and I've had many of them read to me because I've done a good deal of tutoring, uh, it's very simple. They, they, some of them can read fairly quickly, but then you notice that they leave out words that are there. They put in words that aren't there. Uh, they mutilate words. They'll see a word like newspaper, and they say paper, or the word says telephone, and they say phone. They're looking at a picture, you see, because in the look-say method, each word is a picture. And so when these kids develop this uh, automatic way of looking at words as pictures, they do not see the phonetic structure of the word. They do not see the phonetic structure of the word. As a matter of fact, the look-say people would teach what they call uh, the structure of the word by dividing the word into three parts, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Well, that's not how our words are. Our words are composed of syllables. And what is a syllable? A syllable is a unit of speech with one vowel sound. That's what a syllable is. A unit of speech with one vowel sound. And that's how our words are, are made up, our multisyllabic words. And if you teach children to look at a word at the beginning and the end and the middle, and most of the kids have no idea what the middle says, so they'll look for a cue at the very beginning. Well, let me give you an idea how they teach children to read by the look-say method. Uh, maybe I can use this uh, beautiful apparatus. 
I usually use one of those, but uh, the uh, blackboards, but this, I found out that you can actually write on these things. <laughs> so I'm going to try my luck with this. All right, now we'll turn it on, see what happens. Uh, whoops. Well, this thing got stuck. Where is this cord? I'm being pulled at from all directions. Huh? Oh, this one? This one? Ah, that's good. It's great to have a handyman in the audience. <laughs> okay, well, say for example, the teacher will, will introduce the word horse. Uh, the first thing she does is put a little frame around it. That is your look-say teacher. Now, that's the frame, and that's what they call the configuration clue. And she says, see the little horse? Now, H-O-R-S-E does not look like a horse. But you've got to stretch your imagination. How would you see a horse there? Probably the H would remind you of a horse, you know, tall neck sticking up. And maybe the, t the E looks like a tail or something like that. So that's what is known as the um, configuration clue. Well, then they also have pictures on the page. Lots of horses. So the child looks at the word and looks at the pictures and say, that word must say horse. Uh, so we call that the picture clue. So you've got the configuration clue, the picture clue. Then, then they say, well, you can't always have pictures of horses every time you use the word horse because uh, you've got other things to illustrate. So they, they also provide what they call context clues. Uh, they'll put the word in a sentence such as, the man put the saddle on the, and the child will think, well, it could be a, a donkey could be a camel, uh, could be uh, a pony, but it's probably a horse. That's the. And then they also uh, teach phonetic clues uh, because they know that you know just to reduce the ridiculousness of the guessing. So they'll teach a child that if the word begins with H, it couldn't possibly be banana. You know, it could be house, hotel hearse or horse. Looks a lot like hearse too, doesn't it? Easy, confuse it into hearse. Uh, so that's what is known as the phonetic clue. You see, they do teach some phonics, but just beginning consonant, end consonant. And uh, so the, kid, the, the, the child tries to learn hundreds of words this way. It's not easy remembering all these words on the basis of the, you know, what you see. And this phonetic knowledge that they give to the kids is parked up there. They don't always use it. Why? Because these teachers also encourage word substitutions. Do you know what a word substitution is? If the child looks at that word and says pony, the teacher will say, wonderful, you saw a four-legged animal, you see. Well, but there's a big difference between a pony and a horse. I mean, you know, that's why we have two different ways of spelling them. But that's what they encourage. So the child is told that pony is okay. So he says, well, what do I have to know about the H for? You know, 
The sounds, in other words, he's discouraged from using phonetic clues because they're now considered not terribly reliable. As a matter of fact, in the new way of teaching with whole language, they distinctly discourage the children from, from relying on phonetic clues at all, even though they teach some of them. They have to, you see. Well, anyway, the child, uh, after learning hundreds of sight words like this, and has no phonics, or very little phonics, of course, we'll look at a word uh, from the front or the rear. You know, if you're looking at a picture, do you always look at a picture from the left to the right? No, you look at a picture in any way that it will, you know, that attracts your attention. And in, and in this, and in, in learning to read this way, that child will look for the element in the word that reminds him it, uh, of what it says. It might be at the end of the word, it might be in the middle of the word, in some cases it might even be at the beginning of the word. But in other words, there's no discipline. You see, when you learn to read phonetically, you have to read from left to right. You have to read the H, or S, or S, or S. You have to read from left to right. You have no choice. You must read from left to right. And uh, so you, there's a discipline when you learn phonics. Uh, but there's no discipline with, with sight words. Uh, you can learn them any way you want. And this has been proven by their own studies. I mean, these are people who, were, uh, who knew very early in the game that kids could not learn to read that way. They knew that. That's what you have to understand is these professors knew that kids would not learn to read, that they would develop reading problems. We call them dyslexia today. And incidentally, the word dyslexia was made famous by Dr. Samuel T. Orton, who in 1929 published an article on how the sight reading method causes reading disability. Now, Dr. Orton had been doing studies of children in Iowa who were having reading problems, and he came to the conclusion that this new sight method was causing the problem. And so... Uh, he wrote this article, which was published in the February 1929 Journal of Educational Psychology. Now, in those days, the professors of education, of, of professors of reading, were planning the Dick and Jane books. The Dick and Jane books, as a matter of fact, came out in 1930, the first edition. And uh, then the Macmillan readers, which were based on the same idea of teaching sight words. And... Uh, Dr. Orton was very alarmed. He said, you know, you guys, you're going to subject American children to a method which is going to cause great harm. Well, they published this article, but they did not change their plans. I've often asked myself, why did they publish this article? Why didn't they just suppress it? I think they published this article because it confirmed what they intended to do. He had confirmed to them that their method would cause reading disability. And that's what they wanted. And so, uh, uh, and incidentally, uh, Dr. Orton became so frustrated that he began training doctors to set up clinics in hospitals throughout the United States who would cure dyslexia. 
Now, how would they do that? He teamed up with a lady by the name of Anna Gillingham, and they created the so-called Orton-Gillingham method, which is intensive systematic phonics. That's the way you teach children to read. And he instructed his uh, these doctors that that was the way to cure this problem, to cure dyslexia, was through this uh, uh, program of intensive systematic phonics. Now, there are some people who say, oh, well, no, no, some dyslexics are born that way. I don't believe it for one minute, and I'll tell you why. Yes, there are some people who have, uh, who, uh, who take longer to learn something. That doesn't mean that they have a disease or a condition, you know, I mean, that's, we don't know why that, that, that happens. I mean, it, it would certainly take me longer to learn calculus than others or any difficult subject. Uh, you know, everybody learns, as they say, in, in their own way, and, and, and we have blocks against certain things. There's some people who don't like arithmetic or math. But, uh, but the beauty of the way reading was taught for generations after the alphabet had been invented was that it worked for everyone. You see, this the drill that the... Uh, that the uh, progressives and the liberals uh, didn't like, the baby Bible view, the Mamie Mimo Mew. That was very effective because all it required was rote memorization, repetition. And immediately the kids not only learned the letters of the alphabet and the sounds of the letters, but also they learned uh, 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 the blend. They were learning B-A, Bay, not B-A. Or they were learning Ab, not A-B, you see. So they were able to, to take care of two problems. First of all, and, and what they developed, they made the children develop a phonetic reflex. Phonetic reflex is very important because that's all that reading is about. It's a reflex. In other words, they trained the children in such a manner that when they looked at the letters, they automatically heard the sounds. That's what a reflex is. There, there are unconditioned reflexes and conditioned reflexes. Uh, an unconditioned reflex is when somebody hits your knee and your leg goes flying up. That's unconditioned. Uh, that's, that's natural. Or when somebody, you know, approaches your face head on and you close your eyes automatically. You don't have to think about it. That's what a reflex is. You don't have to think about it. And we develop all sorts of conditioned reflexes, such as when you drive a car. I mean, when you see the red light, you don't say, now, what does that mean? You know, and you say, gee, what do I do? I have to put my foot on this one. You know exactly, your foot automatically goes on that brake. You don't have to think about it. You can be having a conversation with someone. You can be even having a phone conversation these days in a car. And your foot knows what to do. You don't have to think about it. Well, it's the same with reading. See, when you master the letter sounds through drill, it's automatic. It's the automaticity that is important, the creation of that reflex. Now, what the psychologists did, these professors did, was prevent children from developing an automatic reflex. And the way they did it was to teach the children to look at words as whole pictures. And so the child would look at a whole word 
and not see this the phonetic structure. First of all, they were not taught the letter sounds in that manner. They were not taught to see syllables as they are. They were not taught this so that you know, one of the symptoms of dyslexia is supposedly very uh, uh, lack of phonetic knowledge. Well, if the child has not been taught it, of course he lacks it. Does it mean he was born that way? No, it means that he wasn't taught it and he was deliberately prevented from developing that reflex. You know why? Because when you develop a reflex of, of looking at words, you automatically create a block against seeing the words in another way. In other words, you cannot... Uh, and a friend of mine demonstrated that to me. He said, uh, why don't you try to do arithmetic with a, uh, with a uh, what it, place two system? instead of, we have ten, you know, just do it with two. Impossible, because your reflex is ten. You have a ten reflex, and you're not going to be able to work on a system that uses just two. It's impossible. So it's the same with a lot of children who have been reading for years as whole words, and they develop this blockage against seeing the words phonetically. That's why it's so difficult to remediate these sight readers. It's not easy. First of all, it's, it's become a habit. They will skip words and, and, and you know, and, and put in words that aren't there and, and truncate words and substitute words. And how do you break such habits? Well, I've, I've uh, specialized in doing that. As a matter of fact, I developed my Alpha Phonics book as a means of remediating, well, not only of teaching children to read, but also remediating them uh, with uh, intensive systematic phonics. And what I do is, and I've done this with all sorts of, the, the only true dyslexic I have ever found was a severely retarded young man. Severely retarded. And he had never learned to read. I, got, I started tutoring him at the age of 20, I believe. His mother had heard of my work, and she asked if I would uh, teach him. Well, I listened. He had a terrible speech problem, low IQ, and I thought, gee, this is... I'll, I'll try. I'll see what happens. Anyway, I did teach him to read phonetically, but I noticed. And he could only go up to about the third grade. That was it. That was Beyond that, it was just too difficult for him. But in any case... Uh, I noticed that he had a tendency to look at words as whole configurations. Even though he had been taught phonetically, he had not been taught by sight, he would automatically substitute a word. And I thought to myself, and the only way that I could get him to correct himself was to look at the letters and spell the word. Once he spelled the word, he knew that what he had said was wrong and he was able to sound it out. But he was a severely retarded uh, individual. Well, I found out that, uh, that they are training children, normal children today, to read like, like retarded children. That is where they will substitute a word and cannot sound it out. Well, that's what my poor friend, this poor uh, fellow, with an IQ of 60. I mean, they're taking perfectly normal kids, and that's the way they're teaching them today. 
so that these kids are reading as if they were mentally retarded. You see, now, you might ask, how do they do this? How, do they know what they're doing? Of course they know what they're doing. They know all about reflexology. They know what reflexes are all, all about because that's what they've been, that's what they were studying in Pavlov's laboratories in, in Russia. You know, you heard about the salivating dog. How many of you are familiar with the uh, Pavlov dog experiments? What was that all about? Well, conditioning. And the inter and I have a chapter in this book called The uh, Psychology's Best Kept Secrets. Well, you see, um, Pavlov and his friend and his uh, cohorts were very much concerned uh, about how to artificially create behavioral disorganization. They did experiments on it. And Pavlov himself wrote, after they had done these experiments, and succeeded in artificially creating behavioral disorganization. He says, the power of our knowledge over the nervous system will, of course, appear to much greater advantage if we learn not only to injure the nervous system, but also to restore it at will. It will then have been really proved that we have mastered the processes that are controlling them. Indeed, this is so. In many cases, we are not only causing disease, but are eliminating it with great exactitude, one might say, to order. Now, all of this was put in a book by a man by the name of Luria, Alexander Luria, a Soviet psychologist. And his book was translated and published in the United States in um, 1932, I believe. And this book is about how you artificially create behavioral disorganization. And this is what Luria writes. He says, Pavlov obtained very definite affective breaks and acute disorganization of behavior each time that the conditioned reflexes collided. See the collision of two conditioned reflexes. When the animal was unable to react to two mutually exclusive tendencies or was incapable of adequately responding to any imperative problem. Now, that's the method that is being used today. You see, in other words, yeah, you will, if you go into a whole language classroom and ask the teacher if he or she teaches phonics, they all say yes. Oh, yes, we all teach phonics. What kind of phonics do they, they have to teach phonics? You know why? Because they've got to create the two conflicting tendencies. The whole word approach and the phonetic approach. You see, they've got to do the two in order to create behavioral disorganization or what I call cognitive dysfunction. Cognitive dysfunction is, can be deliberately caused by setting up this situation of this collision of the two conditioned reflexes so that the poor uh, animal, and, and in this case the human being, who is also considered an animal by these uh, evolutionists, uh, will react in a very frustrated way. And you know what happens to these kids. They become violent. As a matter of fact, a great correlation has been made between reading failure 
and, and delinquency. In fact, 85% of the people in prison today are functionally illiterate. And they've all gone to American public schools. I did a study of what happened in Los Angeles. What happened in Los Angeles? You had 100,000 functional illiterates experiencing cognitive dysfunction uh, produced by the schools destroying the city. You see, because each one of these individuals is like a walking time bomb. See, they've been pushed, they, they've been subjected to this in the first and second grades, and so have no idea why they're, they are this way, but they know that the school did it to them. How do they know that? Well, children enter school having taught themselves to speak their own language. Isn't that true? You can't get into school unless you can do at least that. So these kids have, on their own, not only taught themselves to speak their own language, but they developed a vocabulary, a, a, a speaking vocabulary in the thousands of words. And so when they enter school, they feel very intelligent, very capable of learning. And yet within six months, when they experience this terrible frustration of not being able to learn to read, they begin to feel stupid. They begin to feel that there's something wrong with them. And of course, they know that it happened in school. Before they went to school, they felt intelligent. Now in school, they feel dumb and stupid. And they're frustrated. And who are they going to take it out on? They're going to take it out on the system that did it to them. Now, I believe that all of this is being done on, a, on an unconscious level. I don't believe that they really... But although there are some kids who will go and shoot up a school, there was a fellow in California who actually went into his high school and shot it up because he said they did this to him. And, uh, you know, that was a terrible case, terrible tragedy. But we are creating monsters. This method creates monsters. And so you had in Los Angeles 100,000 of these walking time bombs who get involved in gangs because they, they come out of school with no employable skills. You see, you can actually spend 12 years in a public school and come out knowing nothing. That's quite an achievement. It's not easy creating functional illiteracy. You need special, specially trained teachers, special books, special programs. It's not easy keeping kids in school for 12 years and making sure they don't learn to read. What do you do for 12 years? You know what you do? You pretend to teach. And the kids pretend to learn. Everybody pretends. And the legislature pretends that the schools are teaching and gets all this money for them. That's what goes on. So now, how does a child, uh, how does the look-same method cause dyslexia? Well, another thing that the schools did wrong was when they introduced the sight method, they also uh, put in the um, manuscript writing. See, when I went to school, believe it or not, I was taught cursive writing in the first grade. I was never taught to print. As a matter of fact, I learned to print in, I think it was junior high school, in art class. 
But in those days, and, and you know it because your grandparents, who are probably my age anyway, your parents or grandparents were taught cursive in the first grade. So everybody developed a nice cursive script, but then when they went over the look-same method, they wanted to make sure that the kids were not taught cursive, so they taught them manuscript. And in manuscript, what do you have? You have B and D, F and T, G and Q. Well, it's very easy to confuse these letters, isn't it? Kids confuse B's and D's all the time, don't they? And F's and T's, and G's and Q's, because they look so much alike, because that's the ball and stick. Ball and stick, you see. But if you learn to write cursive, this is the way a B looks, and that's a D. The B starts like an L, and the D starts like an A, so you couldn't possibly confuse the two, you see. The F starts like an L, and the T uh, goes just right up and down, you see. The G starts like an A, and the Q starts like a, an A too. Well, I suppose they look a little alike there too, but it's a little easier, because not only for that, but because the letters are joined together and uh, it's in the joining of the letters where you also get the blend, you see. The blending of the letters, the blending of the word. So if you're learning cursive, you're going to learn to read better than if you were taught by the printed method, by the manuscript. And that's why I advise all parents today, forget about manuscript, teach your child cursive from the beginning. You know, today what they do in the schools is they teach manuscript, uh, you know, ball and stick in the first grade, and in the second grade, slant ball and stick. And in the third grade, then they thrust them into, uh, into cursive. But by the third grade, the kids are not going to undo, they're not going to unlearn one form of writing and slow down and start writing in another way. So what happens? A lot of people just continue printing for the rest of their lives. Then you have some people who will produce a hybrid, you know, part print, part cursive, you know. You've seen it. Uh, the letters, the words are divided up into strange ways, but, uh, uh, and of course, uh, then some kids do develop a good cursive. You know why? They've been practicing it secretly on their own because they wanted to write like grown-ups from the very beginning, and even though they're parents and the school said, oh, you're not ready yet, you're not ready yet. They went ahead and did it, and they found out that they could do it. So, you know, uh, and that's why they learned to, to, to write so nicely. And it helped them learn to read. And it helped us learn to read. It helped your grandparents learn to read. And of course, as you know, your grandparents generally have better handwriting than you. Isn't that true? Why? Because we were taught penmanship. You know, a, a cursive writing is very easy. There are only three movements. There's the undercurve, the overcurve, and the up and down. You know, you've got the undercurve, the overcurve, and up and down. That's all there is to cursive. Very simple. Kids like it because they like to make scrolls. 
they don't like to make perfect lines and perfect little balls. And also, if you notice, when they print, the letters are all over the place. Have you noticed? Uh, you know, there's, some are big, some are small. With cursive, you have greater discipline. You've, first of all, you've got to write from left to right. You have to start the letter in a, in a particular way. With, uh, with the manuscript, you could start your uh, letter backwards. Doesn't matter. You know, but with cursive, you must write from left to right in a particular manner because the next, you've got to be able to join it with the next letter. So there's discipline. And you know, as a matter of fact, when I was um, visiting with the, the uh, Hortons at Christian, uh, Pensacola Christian College a couple of years ago, I was telling Becca Horton. Now, Becca Horton is the one who's created the uh, Becca books. And at that time, they were also teaching manuscript, and then they taught the child uh, cursive in the third grade. I said, I said, Mrs. Horton, you should start the kids writing cursive in the first grade, because that's the way it was done when I was going to school, and it helps in learning to read. And I gave her all of the arguments, and she agreed. She said, hey, we're going to do that. So they put together elementary, uh, primary, cursive program, first grade and kindergarten. Well, I said, well, gee, I know that first graders can do it, but I don't know about kindergarten, kindergartners. I mean, uh, I can vouch for first graders because I was in the first grade and all of us learned cursive. But, but then what I was told by one of their salespeople is that the kids, it takes a little longer in kindergarten to master cursive, but by Thanksgiving Day, they do it. In other words, it's under control. At first, it may be a big scroll, but by the time they get to Thanksgiving Day, they've managed to, to control it rather nicely. So that was very good news. And uh, so they, they, they went over and created the books, and I'm delighted that I've had that influence in getting people back to cursive. See, we do have to get back to the basics. going to be able to do it. The schools are way out there. They want nothing to do with this. They want nothing to do with uh, intensive systematic phonics, but they are absolutely essential if we are to get back to the basics. And you can do it at home. That's the beauty of that. You can do it at home. Well, anyway, so you have kids reversing letters. They look alike. And you've got, of course, uh, their inability to decode because they haven't been taught, uh, you know, phonics. And what other symptoms are there? What are the other symptoms? Can, does anybody want to tell me what the other symptoms are? Incidentally, what is the time? Am I running over? Or under? Are we past time? What time? Is, I got to get the... I got to get the... Huh? Keep going. 
Really? Oh yeah, let me let me get questions. Yeah. Your son was broken. Yeah. Yeah. He's perfectly normal. It's the teaching that's broken. Yeah. Right. Well, you know what's happened? The kids don't have learning disabilities. It's the teachers who have teaching disabilities. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll be very glad to talk to anybody after this is over, but time is up. Thank you very much. God bless you all.